Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, everyone. Welcome to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuva in Thornton, Colorado. Today is Tuesday, March 8th, 2016. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we're excited about what you're doing in our midst and uh, in our families. And Lord, we just want to stop and bless you and say that we love you and that we're so thankful that you have sent your son into our lives. We're so thankful that by your promises, you have sent your spirit uh, to continue to challenge us and to mold us and to shape us and to press us ever forward into a relationship with you, to draw us close to you and to strengthen us. Father, we thank you that the... Um, words of Galatians have been preserved for us, and that we can uh, continue to grow as we study, as we avail ourselves of your promises, and as we uh, continue to, to, to learn to say no to sin and to say yes to Yeshua. Um, Lord, we ask that you will uh, forgive us where we fall short, but we ask that you'll continue to um, allow us to sit and to learn and to strengthen one another as we study together and grow together. Uh, be with us as a community of Jews and Gentiles who are bearing your precious name, who are looking for the uh, soon return of your son, Yeshua, the only true Messiah of Israel. We thank you that you have um, given us this awesome responsibility to share this good news with those around us who don't yet know. So Father, give us an opportunity to share. Give us the opportunity to um, be a witness, to be a light, to be salt, um, and sometimes just to be a friend. And so I thank you for each and every student who has come out tonight. Um, I pray that you'll bless them. I pray that you'll give them a supernatural ability to retain um, the things that are being taught. Um, I pray that you will um, help us to make a practical application to seek to dig deeper into the text and not be just um, surface level believers, but to, to be noble Bereans and, and, and dig deeper and see if these things are so. And so continue to uh, lead us in the direction that you would have us to go. Uh, we surrender our lives to you. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the preeminence in all things that we do. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. All right. Um, this is week 20 of our Exegeting Galatians study. And as I mentioned earlier, um, this commentary is available online at uh, www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T. 
S-T-O-R-A-H, dot com. Right on the homepage, just click on the link that says, along the very top, that says um, Galatians Commentary. And then scroll down through the page and you'll see where you can open the PDF, or you can print it, um, or you can just um, read chapter by chapter. And we're just going along. Uh, every 10 weeks, we have a study. And then that's what we call a semester. Each semester is 10 weeks long. And then we take a two-week break, uh, give the teacher time to get caught up on, on writing and answering questions, and give the students time to maybe go back and listen to studies that they missed or things like that. Um, and then we start again uh, the new semester every every uh, every 10 weeks, a new semester starts. So um, today is the last uh, this week is the last week of our second semester, so we'll be on two-week break. We won't meet again until, if I look at my calendar, March 29th. So about that time, we'll be right in the middle of Purim. So we'll see what happens then, okay? By the way, um, for those of you who don't get a chance to join us live every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, which... By the way, everyone's invited. The registration is free. Just, again, hit my website, tatesaytor.com, and when you uh, visit the Galatians page, there should be some relevant information there about how to enroll for the class so that you can receive the teaching notes. But if you fail to uh, make it out to the live class, then each teaching gets uh, uploaded to my website, pushed up to my iTunes podcast page as well, and you can catch the hour-long teaching after the fact. Um, a bonus uh, exclusive to those of you who jo do join us for the live teaching is that I offer a 15 or 20-minute uh, live chat at the end of each teaching where we, um, uh, the students and the teacher can kind of chat with one another, um, ask questions, comments, make corrections. Uh, you know, I'm only one person. I wrote the commentary that we're studying, and it's about 170 pages or so. And I'm only one person, so I do welcome views uh, that, that are different than my own because I'm growing in my uh, study of the book of Galatians. And um, I certainly welcome um, viewpoints that are different than my own. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to imagine that I have all the answers. So please do join me uh, for the chat session if you do come to the live class. All right, let's entertain some liturgy. If you're in the live class tonight, you'll see that I've got Deuteronomy 6.20 pulled up on the screen, and I'm just going to go along like I did last week, uh, where I'm going to read, <clears throat> where I'll read the um, the uh, English underneath the Hebrew, and uh, if you can see the screen, this is no true version, it's just an interlinear version, which means um, there's no, say, popular English version that this corresponds to. This is not KJV or ESV or NIV or anything like that. It's just a kind of a wooden translation that uh, I'm uh, following along with uh, so that I can read the uh, English so that you can hear it after the Hebrew. So I'll read the English. Uh, I'll go like maybe um, a sentence and then I'll read the Hebrew and then I'll go a sentence and read the Hebrew and we'll go like that. Just read five verses. Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25, and um, I'll tell you after I read it why I read this particular passage, okay? Um, starting in verse 20, we read, When asks your son you in time to come, saying, Ki lemor, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments that has commanded the Lord our God? Ma ha'idot v'hokim v'habmishpitim asher tziva Adonai Eloheinu et Verse 21, then you shall say 
to your son, Vamarta Levincha, slaves you were to Pharaoh in Egypt, Avadim Hayinu Lefaro Bemitraim, and brought us out the Lord of Egypt, hand with a mighty, Vayotzi Enu Adonai Mimitraim Biyad Hazaka. Verse 22, and showed the Lord signs and wonders great and very. Against Egypt on Pharaoh and on all his household before our eyes. And verse 23, and he brought from there to the end that from there he might bring us in. To give to us the land that he swore to our fathers. Verse 24. And commanded the Lord us to do all statute thieves. I'm sorry. I'm stumbling on the first word there. There they go. To fear the Lord our God, to for our good always. Yet, uh, that he might preserve us alive this day as this is. Uh, and the final verse, verse 25, and our righteousness, and this is why I'm bringing up this verse, by the way, because the way Moshe describes, this, there's only two places in the Torah, um, here and another time in, um, uh, a little later, later on in Deuteronomy, I believe, um, uh, chapter 25, where uh, Moshe uses this phrase, our righteousness. And it's interesting because um, according to traditional Christian exegesis, the Torah does not provide righteousness at all. And yet, Moshe is saying right here in the Torah that it will be righteousness if you actually keep it. The question is, what type of righteousness? So, um, we read, And our righteousness it shall be if we observe to observe all these commands. And the Hebrew says, hazot." Before the Lord our God, as He has commanded. By the way, um, uh, for those of you who are in the class, you can see that the Hebrew word. Let me pull out my little pointer. Um, there we go. The Hebrew word here, where we talk about if we observe to observe, um, literally it says "kini shmoner laosot." Hebrew word there, ki, for those of you who can't read Hebrew, I'm pointing to it, ki, nishmor, lausot, ki, if, conjunction, nishmor, doesn't necessarily mean observe, it really means to guard, it comes from the root word shamar, which means to guard, and, or to safeguard, or to uh, watch over carefully. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to imply that you're going to do something about the thing that you're guarding. Although, from context, oftentimes it does move in that direction, so that there's kind of like this two-step process in the Hebrew thought. 
There's first the guarding of the thing that's precious to you. Let's say in this example, the commandments. There's the guarding of it, the shamar part, which leads the person into the this next phrase here, la sot, to do it. comes from the root word for asa, which means to do. So in Hebrew thought, there's kind of a two-step mindset to the commandments. There's first the shamar step, which is kind of the internal heart attitude. It's where you, um, you the, the thing that you are intending to do is actually precious to you before you even do it. Understand my point? So we, we shamar in order to asa is the point I'm trying to make. And that's really what the verse says. Um, so when Moshe says, Tihye lanu ki nishmor la sot, it shall be lanu unto us. Tihye is the uh, uh, future tense. It shall be lanu to us ki if nishmor guard, if we guard la sot and do et kol hamitzvah, all of these commandments. Hazot, these. The point I'm trying to emphasize by bringing out this particular passage is that keeping the commandments from a biblical perspective starts with the heart. It starts with the internalization of this idea that what God has said is important. It's this concept of trembling at his word that we that we read about in the latter parts of the Tanakh that the prophets wrote about, trembling at his word. Why would we tremble at his word? Because the words of God are precious. And that's why God would challenge us and say, for instance, in the Shema, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. Right? The words I command you shall be on your heart. You can't do something that's not on your heart. At least you can't do it the way God wants them to be done. Amen? So that's my challenge to traditional uh, Christian exegesis of and viewpoints on the Torah. It's that ancient Israel, as well as uh, today's modern Judaism, today modern uh, Israel, um, the love of the obedience to God, the, the obedience to the commands that we often um, observe many Jewish people going through, the, the, the rituals and the, 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 the daily routine of, of, of keeping kosher and, and things like that, it should, according to the, the biblical view, according to God's perspective, it should start with the heart. These words I command you today shall be upon your heart. And that's why God commands us to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. Um, we can't do what God's asking us to do if the words are not on our heart. Amen? So that was um, one of the reasons why I brought that um well, I'm bringing this passage up, especially because Moses describes it as righteousness. And this cannot be forensic righteousness. This cannot be um, salvation type of righteousness, right? Salvific righteousness, if we could use that lingo, because we know that keeping the Torah won't save you. So therefore, Moshe is not saying in Deuteronomy 25 that it will save you if you observe all these commandments. That's not what Moshe is saying. But what he is describing is is a, a a righteousness that is what we might call on the horizontal level, uh, the right living, the right um, lifestyle, the uh, moral and just and upright, uh, good standing citizen. This will make you into that type of person if you do what God asks you to do. Whether or not you make the connection and form a vertical relationship with God and then connect the dots, but otherwise, at the very least, even at a childlike level, then if you do what the Torah asks you to do, God extends it. God uh, um, 
God credits your account as as this type of righteousness, uh, what I call the um, the uh, temporal righteousness, the, the the righteousness on the earthly level, the righteousness on a moral level, the righteousness on a um, on an everyday practical level. Practical righteousness is available in the Torah if you walk into the Torah, and it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect in your Torah observance. It means that you need to simply avail yourself of God's words and God's ways and confess your sin when the time comes that you find out that you have sinned. Um, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we read in the New Testament. So the point I'm trying to make is um, there is a righteousness described by the Torah, and that's why Paul says that in Romans chapter 10, around verse uh, 3, for Moses describes the righteousness of the law, that the man who does these things will live by them, which is really a reference to the Leviticus uh, 18 uh, uh, 5 passage again. So let's read some um, New Testament uh, verses. This is the passage I've been selecting for my liturgy out of the uh, New Testament, since we're obviously studying the book of Galatians. And uh, I bring this up because, well, I'll read it first and I'll tell you why I bring it up. Um, let me read the English, and I'll do the same thing. I'll read English, and I'll stop and uh, go back and read the Greek. Uh, the English is, O foolish Galatians, who has... Let me start over. O foolish Galatians, who you has bewitched. Uh, the Greek says, uh, O anaitoi galatai, tis humas abaskanen. The truth not obeying, te lethia me pethesthai, whose before eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed, as having been crucified. Next verse. This only I wish to learn from you. By works of law, ex ergonamu, the spirit topnuma, did you receive elabete? Or by hearing with faith, ex pistios. Next verse. So foolish are you having begun in the spirit hutas anoitoi este inarxemenoi pnumati. Now in the flesh are you being perfected nun sarki epatelesta. So many things did you suffer in vain to salta epatete eke, if indeed also in vain, ege kai eke. Verse 5. The one, therefore, supplying to you the spirit and working miracles among you, ho un epikorgan, humen topenuma kai in ergon dunames en humen, is it by works of law, ex ergonamu, or by hearing with faith, ex aques pistios? And I'll stop there. Now, <clears throat> the reason I read this verse is because of its immediate relevance for our study on the book of Galatians, but also because of the way it seemingly contradicts what we just read about in Moshe. And the point is that Paul is obviously setting up a dichotomy between this uh, works of law, what we have here in the uh, Greek, for instance, I'm picking on verse uh, 5, uh, works of law here, ergonamu, is juxtaposed with ex aquis pistios, uh, out of the hearing of faith. And Paul wants to know from his Galatian community, what is it that drew the Spirit of God to your midst as a community? 
Was it because of the works of the law or was it because of the hearing with faith? And no matter how we define works of the law, ergo namu, it is obviously a a position that the first century Judaisms of Paul's day were believing drew the the power and the blessings of God. And it, it, fig, it figures prominently, in, at least in Paul's letter to the Galatians and Romans, but it seems to kind of almost die out in his other letters, his pastorals and things like that. Perhaps maybe it goes under the rubric, simply the phrase works, ergo, and perhaps it doesn't. Um, that will be uh, the job of, of us as um, exegeters, as we study through the text to figure out where did works of the law disappear uh, in the rest of Paul's letters. Does it simply mean works, like he says in Romans? Or is Paul simply saying it's not by works that one is saved, like he says in Ephesians? For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. And we know the Greek word there is ergon, not of works, lest any man should boast. Sometimes Paul contrasts ergon namu with flesh, like in, um, uh, let's see, it was just a few verses earlier, uh, here. So foolish are you having begun in the spirit, now in the flesh are you being perfected? So notice in verse um, 2, this I only wish to learn from you, by works of the law, the spirit did you receive, or by hearing with faith? Here we have works of law, ergon numu, versus aquais um, pistios, uh, hearing with faith. But in the very next pasuk, in the very next verse, Galatians 3.3, 3, he says, So foolish are you having begun the Spirit, now in the flesh are you being perfected. Why doesn't he say, So foolish have you begun in the Spirit, now in works of the law are you being perfected. You see my point? So what he's done is he must be um, using as kind of synonymous works of the law with sarki, which is flesh. And so this kind of gives us a hint. Um, was the these works of the law... Were they something that um, a person could do and be graded on? Was there a kind of a progress chart that he could make so that he could he could chart his 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 progression of going from step one as an initiate all the way to to graduation, and therefore he knew then that God would uh, reward him with X amount of blessing or the Spirit, and that's that's kind of going to become one of the challenges that I'm going to keep presenting in my commentary as we're studying. Uh, the book of Galatians, and things like that. So, with that, uh, our liturgy is finished. Let's turn now to my commentary. Uh, we're on page 23, if you've actually downloaded or are uh, looking at the entire commentary, if you've downloaded it in PDF version. Um, I have to make a, a, um, I have to make a, um, a disclaimer. I am, I am currently updating the commentary week by week. And that means that every now and then, if you download or print a page, do it at your own discretion because it may not even be the most recent version from week to week. In fact, uh, one of the students who's in the class right now, I emailed him a copy just last week. And yet now the version we're looking at is probably one or two pages difference from the one I emailed him. Why? Because every week as I'm studying for the class, I... Um, I uh, encounter insights that I feel belong in my commentary. And so I, I turn to my commentary and start adding those insights or clarifications or corrections as I'm dialoguing with the students via email uh, week by week. Things that I didn't see just from one week to the next. And, or of course, also I'm reading through Galatians um, every day and I'm just 
mining the text for nuggets here and there as the Ruach, uh, as the Holy Spirit reveals them to me. And as I, as I, uh, uh, prayerfully avail myself of the, of the Word of God, like every student should. And so the point I'm trying to make is that uh, on any given week, uh, if you print out my commentary, it may not be the most up-to-date version uh, because I just constantly keep updating it. So the point I'm trying to encourage you as students is this. If you're interested in following my commentary, perhaps just keep a... Um, Keep a bookmark on my website, tatesatora.com, and, and bookmark the Galatians page because I'll I'll put a date on whenever I update it. And so right at the very top, it'll say, like, updated, blah, blah, blah. And so if you go to my webpage now, you'll see that it says updated March 8th. Well, that's today. That's because I was working on it today, and I updated it. I uh, completely reworked the uh, the summary section and, and, and made it a little bit more readable, made it a bit – made uh, – um, improved the structure of, of, of how you uh, interact with the summary, made it a little bit easier to uh, understand the, the, the flow of the, uh, of the context and things like that. All right, uh, let's pick up our commentary reading in, on the top of page 23, which is where we left off last week. We read this paragraph where we're introducing the, uh, the idea that um, 4QMMT, the Qumran cave documents that were, uh, I believe they were discovered in the 50s, uh, like as in the 1950s, but they weren't actually um, translated until probably several, uh, a few decades later. And that's, I think that was due to some um, <clears throat> political quibbles and things like that in the Middle East. But nevertheless, we w- what happened is uh, we discovered these ancient documents that use some of the similar terminology as Paul. Works of the law and uh, counted as righteousness and things like that. And so it became suddenly an extra source of, of um, extant literature that we could kind of uh, uh, hold up uh, in comparison to Paul's writings and see if there are some similarities and contrasts and comparisons, things that might help us better understand and appreciate uh, the first century worldview that Paul lived in. Sure enough, there were some phrases in there that were helpful. So let's read those. I'm starting in the paragraph, uh, uh, for those of you who are in the live class, I'm starting over here. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright notes that MMT, in the 4Q MMT document, is the transliterated acronym of the phrase, some of the works of the law. And I've got the Hebrew there written. It says, Miksat Ma'aseh HaTorah. Um, MMT, uh, Miksat Ma'aseh HaTorah, which is what MMT stands for, is reconstructed from six Qumran fragments, none of them complete. It seems to be a letter written in the mid-2nd century BCE from the leader of the Qumran group to the head of a larger group of which the Qumran sect was once a part. He reproduces, uh, Bishop Wright produces, an English translation of the fragment that contains our phrase works of the law in his commentary on 4Q, MMT, and justification. So let's read that here. Trying to get my page to scroll down. Apologize. There we go. This is a quote from uh, Bishop Wright. Quote, now we have written to you... Oh, I'm sorry. This is this, this was actually found in Bishop Wright's uh, uh, notes, uh, N.T. Wright's notes, and I just reproduced it here for my commentary so you, can all, you all can see the uh, relevant passage, one of them, that uses the phrase uh, works of law. This is straight out of the 4QMMT, essentially. Quote, now we've written to you some of the works of the law, those which we... Uh, determined would be beneficial for you and your people because we've seen things that you possess. We've, we have seen that you possess insight and knowledge of the law. Understand all these things and beseech him to set your counsel straight 
Excuse me. And so keep you away from evil thoughts and the counsel of Belial. Then you shall rejoice at the end time when you find the essence of our words to be true. And it will be reckoned to you as righteousness and that you have done what is right and good for him to your own benefit and to that of Israel. End quote. So um, what we're seeing right away is that in our endeavor to try and uh, better understand these phrase works of law and Paul, whether or not it simply describes uh, merit theology, as I've been describing, in other words, basic good works versus bad works, um, or whether it's uh, a description, the phrase works of law is, is instead a description of some boundary-defining uh, commandments, kind of like a, what I call a short list of do's and don'ts that were imposed upon any given community, uh, basically the way we would describe um, halakha today in Jewish circles, uh, or, or maybe... Um, uh, church bylaws, if you want to use uh, a Christian equivalent to halakha. Either way, what we end up with is that um, there was something that the people could put their hands on, something that they could do, not just something that they would mentally agree with. But at, at the very least, we should all agree that there was something or things, uh, whether it be one commandment or ten commandments or 613 commandments like the rabbis teach, Nevertheless, there was some a set of laws that were being um, taught uh, or being presupposed by the Jewish communities that if the Jewish community would, would keep these, if they would do them, that God would reckon to them righteousness. And we haven't even really uh, discussed whether this phrase righteousness was the imputed righteousness, um, you know, such as Christianity uh, describes salvation is, or whether or not it was behavioral righteousness, i.e. Uh, sanctification, a right living. Does God simply see that the community is doing the right thing because they're walking in the Torah? Or was it a combination of both? Um, those are uh, nuances we haven't gotten to yet because I'm reserving them for chapter, I'm sorry, for section, I believe it's uh, four, where we talk about um, covenantal nomism and justification. We'll get to that a little later on in my commentary, but for now we're just we're, we're parked on this phrase "works of law" because we're trying to better understand how Paul perhaps would have interacted with this phrase. Um, let's keep reading my commentary. His summary, speaking of uh, uh, N.T. Wright, his summary comments to these findings are presented in his conclusion. This is uh, N.T. Wright quote: "The comparison and contrast between Paul and M.M.T. in short highlights for us today." The way in which Paul's writing on justification belongs firmly within its Jewish context, and the significance of the new thing Paul was saying precisely within that context, exactly the sort of point for which Earl Ellis has become famous. On the one hand, we only understand Paul if we see that, like the author of MMT, Paul, he was making the comprehensible Second Temple Jewish point that the eschatological moment had arrived that the community of the New Covenant had been established, and that the proper definition of this community in the present was a matter of utmost urgency. On the other hand, by contrasting Paul with MMT, we can see the difference it made when the eschatological event in question consisted of the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. No longer would the New Covenant community be defined in terms of a subset of ethical, I'm sorry, of ethnic Israel, marked out by works of Torah, defined this way and that with a developing halakha. Notice that phrase, that sentence there where uh, N.T. Wright uh, highlights um, uh, ethnic Israel. 
Um, the new covenant to keep reading here, the new covenant community, speaking of the, 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 the Messianic Jews in Paul's day, as well as the newly joining Gentile Christians who were joining the, uh, the, the, uh, the first century group. Um, the new covenant community formed through the death and resurrection of the Messiah and the gift of the eschatological spirit would be known by the faith which that same spirit evoked through the gospel. Scroll down a bit. The faith that acknowledged Jesus as the risen Messiah and Lord, and that meant that the community was open to all. Herein lies the deep Jewishness of Paul and his greatest innovation. End quote. Now, um, the force of 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 uh, appreciating what uh, N.T. Wright is trying to um, say here is that is an is an understanding what Paul uh, infers when he talks about in uh, say Ephesians when he talks about the mystery of the gospel. Quite often, it's um, it's it's taught that the mystery of the gospel. Uh, centers on the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of God coming to earth as a man. And while it's true that Paul brings in more than one mystery in his writings, it is one of the mysteries that uh, God has appeared to us incarnate. In the book of Ephesians, however, when Paul says the mystery of the gospel, using the, the articles there, the and the, before mystery and gospel, Paul defines the mystery of the gospel as the fact that Gentiles, as Gentiles, are now included into the people group of God, which, from Paul's perspective, historically, the people group of God was primarily made up of ethnic Jews until the Gentiles were invited in mass after the uh, Acts 2 incident. You guys understand what I'm saying here? So, from a historical perspective, there is this importance of the gospel going to the Gentiles and bringing them into the community of Israel, but not forcing them or not um, requiring them to take on ethnic Jewish status before they can be counted as genuine covenant members among the existing Jewish community. And that's the point I'm trying to highlight as we study through the book of Galatians, is that that's the worldview that Paul worked with. That's the worldview that he lived in, is that the traditional, uh, I'm sorry, the standard Jewish view of, kim, of community was more or less restricted to, this, to these ethnic boundaries. So that it was quite amazing, quite um, scandalous to bring a Gentile into the community as a Gentile without having him go through the proselyte ceremony. Uh, this, I believe, helps us to begin to uh, put a better definition on Paul's phrase, works of the law, because of its emphasis on circumcision and the way circumcision was being used as a, uh, a, a Jewish marker, a, a metonym to, uh, to Jewish identity. Um, it's no secret that the Jewish people of Paul's day uh, believed that um, circumcision was the mark of Jewish identity. Most Christian pastors and, and, and authors uh, understand that point. But what I think many uh, Christian authors fail to see, in my experience, is how important Jewish identity was to being counted as righteous in Paul's uh, first century Judaisms. And so let's keep reading, and I think that's going to uh, uh, show itself. Having just examined Brit Milah in section 1 and the ouch factor of circumcision in section 2, we should be asking the following vital questions at this point. From a first century social religious Jewish perspective, 
How exactly does circumcision fit in with works of the law? After all, isn't circumcision actually included in the commandments spelled out by the law itself? Why are they listed as two distinct and ostensible Gentile requirements in Acts 15.5? And um, I have a footnote, number 11. Uh, if you scroll down, you'll see... Number 11, Acts 15 reads, Acts 15.5 reads, quote, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses, end quote. So my challenge to those who are reading my commentary, or those who might have questions about my view, uh, my position on works of the law and circumcision, as far as it, the way they identify Jewish identity, my question is this. If works of the law simply means works done in obedience to the commandments, like traditional Christianity teaches, then why did this, why did this believing Pharisee in Acts 15.5 separate circumcision from the law of Moses? Why did he say it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses? Isn't circumcision a commandment in the law of Moses? Yes, it is. It's found in Genesis 17, and it's found again in, Le in Leviticus chapter uh, 8. So, because circumcision shows up in the Torah, it is counted among the 613, as far as commandments are enumerated by the, uh, the, the modern rabbis today, the Tariyag, the 613 commandments. Why did this believing Pharisee actually describe them as if they're two different events, two separate um, uh, requirements that they were being imposed that were being imposed upon the Gentile? Here's my um, here's my uh, supposition. Here's what I uh, here here's here's my answer to that question. I believe the reason the Pharisee the Pharisees of Paul's day, particularly this one here in the Book of Acts, that Luke records for us. I believe that the the reason that that uh, circumcision and keeping the law of Moses were described as two separate yet related events is because, as I postulate, in Paul's day, circumcision was being uh, used as the marker of Jewish identity for those males who were not born with it. In other words, Jewish people who were circumcised at day eight had no choice in the matter, right? Their parents uh, did it to them. They were, they were the passive recipients uh, of circumcision. So for them, uh, becoming a Jew is not something that they choose to do. It's something that's done to them uh, involuntarily. However, for an adult male, such as a Gentile wishing to join Israel, because of the common prevailing halakhic stance that Israel is a Jewish-only set and that the Torah is for Jews only, because of that prevailing viewpoint in Paul's day, circumcision then becomes... Uh, the first step in becoming a Jew, and then keeping the law of Moses, gets added to the existing Jewish member in order to um, uh, secure his place in the covenant and become counted among the righteous. And essentially what I see is that the, the Pharisee in Acts 15.5 15, is describing what I call a two sides of the same coin principle, where works of the law slash covenantal nomism is this coin. So picture a coin in your mind. And a coin has two sides, head side, tail side. The head side is the Jewish identity, and the tail side is the keeping of the commandments for the sake of keeping you in the community as a good standing Jew. And so with this coin, you essentially hope to be counted among the righteous of Israel. 
And that's the point I'm trying to make. You needed both sides in order to be counted among the righteous, in order to be, in order to have, to use Paul's lingo, to, in order to have your account credited as righteous by God. Now, of course, this, this theology is bad because we know that being a Jew or keeping the Torah, neither one of those sides of the coin is what God deems as forensic righteousness, right? Um, however, from a limited covenant perspective, that's the way the Judaisms of Paul's day were were misusing Jewish identity along with uh, keeping a Torah. So that's the point I'm trying to emphasize. I believe that works of the law is the, is a description of this two-sided coin. In other words, for Jews, since we already were born with the first side, we don't have to we don't have to emphasize that becoming a Jew aspect for because we're born with it. Our parents um, granted us, as it were, uh, Jewish ethnicity from birth. At least that's the perspective for a male. Um, so therefore, it's basically once I reach adulthood in the community, what we would call, say, bar mitzvah age, uh, maybe you know, uh, twelve, thirteen, etc. Then essentially, it is my responsibility as an as a young adult entering into the community of Israel to start doing my part as a as a um, commandment keeper. So. Remember that there are two covenants that are primarily in view. There's the Abrahamic covenant, uh, spelled out in Genesis 17, and then there's the Mosaic covenant, which we can say let's let's put a let's put uh, Exodus chapter 20 as the designation for the Mosaic covenant, since that's when um, Matan Torah took place. That's when the gift of Torah was given to uh, Am Yisrael. Exodus chapter 20. So we got these two covenants: Genesis 17, the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant, and Exodus 20, the Mosaic, Mosaic Covenant, and those two covenants represent the two sides of the coin that I'm describing. The Abrahamic Covenant is the paradigm for Jewish identity because the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant is circumcision. And the Mosaic Covenant is the paradigm for Torah obedience because the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant of the, uh, I'm sorry, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath itself. We read about that in Exodus chapter 31 about how that, uh, um, uh, Exodus 31, say around verse uh, 15 and 16, uh, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath as an everlasting sign between me and them. So um, let's keep reading in my commentary, and I think we'll see this start fall into place. So uh, I jump down into the commentary. Let me scroll back up again. All right, let's pick up our reading here. The church observes that Israel, both then and now, is preoccupied with Torah observance. The church assumes that this is because Israel hopes to gain right standing with Hashem through her devoted obedience to even the law's smallest details. The church labels this devotion to Torah works of the law, taken from the phrase found eight times in six verses in Paul's writings. There's a footnote, uh, number 12, that lists all of those references, uh, most of them found in Galatians and Romans. Based on the context of Paul's negative comments about this term, the church chooses to interpret this phrase, works of law, as, quote, mere commandment keeping done for the sake of ostensibly gaining favor in God's eyes, end quote. I maintain that given the simple caricature, it is easy to understand why historic Christianity has equated this phrase with legalism. What is more, with this premise firmly in view, it's a short step for a historic church to then reject the covenantal sign of circumcision, uh, since it's naturally assumed by the church that Israel hopes to be accepted by God as righteous, based significantly on merely being the chosen people. Let's keep reading. 
tying our discussion on circumcision, read here as Jewish identity, with our discussion on works of the law, we can readily affirm that most Christians also know that by the first century, the Judaisms of Paul's day began to use the term circumcision as a stand-in term. That's what we mean by metonym. Uh, to designate Jewish identity, you can read Galatians 2, 7-9, through 9, where Paul describes how uh, he and Peter had two separate missions, as it were. Paul was sent to the uncircumcised, and Peter was sent to the circumcised. And Paul tells us what these phrases mean, because he actually says Peter was, uh, Paul was sent to the, to the Gentiles, and Peter was sent to the Jews, as it were. Uh, Paul was sent to the to the Gentiles. Peter was sent to the Jews. Peter was sent to the circumcised. So already by Paul's day, the phrase circumcision and circumcised were stand-in words. They were they were uh, circumlocutions for Jewish people, Jewish identity, Jewish community. Right? I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. There's it's kind of an, in my opinion an innocent use of the phrase circumcision. However. To actually go one step further, like Paul's Jewish Judaisms did, and to actually suppose that when when God told, uh, commanded Abraham to be circumcised in Genesis 17, that God was actually conferring Jewish identity upon him, that's where we take it a step too far, in my opinion. In other words, the the question is posed in my commentaries: Does Jewish identity hinge on circumcision? I maintain that the answer is no. A Jew is not a person who's simply someone who's circumcised. We're going to read. We read that last week in Romans two, where Paul says um, he is not a Jew who's one who's one who is merely he is not a Jew who is merely one who is circumcised in the flesh. Jewish identity is not primarily centered in in circumcision. That's the challenge I'm trying to make. And yet, if you took a survey of today's modern 21st century Jewish communities and asked them. Uh, what part does circumcision play in terms of your identity? I think you'll find a a, a strong um, opinion uh, that uh, circumcision essentially is a description of Jewish identity, and that therefore the Jew is defined by his circumcision. And that's the challenge I'm trying to make, is I don't believe that it should have been used that way, but it then becomes a, um, it then becomes a challenge for Paul to to rip that meaning away from his Jewish communities who are misusing that that uh, covenant marker. Here's what I maintain. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. Circumcision, according to the biblical narrative, Genesis 17 particularly, circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It is not the sign of Jewish identity. Let's follow through with the logic. If circumcision is the sign of Jewish identity, like the Jewish people of Paul's day and the Jewish people of today, and sadly many of the Christians of today are purporting, if that is true, that circumcision is the sign of Jewish identity, then what we are really saying is that the Abrahamic covenant is for Jews only. Do you see my point? Now we know that that cannot be true, right? There is no way theologically possible that Paul would ever agree to the mistaken notion that the Abrahamic covenant is for Jews only. No, no, no. We know for a fact that in Romans chapter 3, which we're going to exegete a little bit of tonight, as well as Galatians chapter 3, that Paul, and 3 and 4, that Paul brings Abraham into his example of showing that those who exercise the faith of Abraham 
are counted as true covenant members along with faithful Abraham. And the sign of the true covenant membership for a genuine Abrahamic child, uh, a child of Abraham, is circumcision of the heart, but not circumcision of the flesh. That's the point I'm trying to make. And Paul would agree with that. The circumcision of the flesh, that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians as well as uh, Galatians chapter 5, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. But what counts is, and then fill in the blank, he has two different endings. You see my point? It's not whether Jewish identity or Gentile identity should be elevated to the forefront, rather. And those distinctions aren't wrong. Those stations in life aren't bad. Rather, what Paul is simply trying to get people to understand, and, and I think I've captured it in my commentary, is that being Jewish or not being Jewish, i.e. being Gentile, is not the litmus test that God uses to determine whether or not a person is salvifically righteous or um, forensically righteous or, or what we might call imputed righteousness, to use church lingo, saved. In other words, a person's not saved because they're a Jew or a Gentile. Neither one of those ethnicities becomes the prerequisite for God to extend salvation to an individual. As one Christian uh, commentator said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Um, whosoever will may come, as the popular Christian hymn says. So, let's keep reading my commentary. This is why I maintain what I say about works of the law, including this this. Um, ethnic boundary marker of, of circumcision, at the very least, if we, if we say that works of the law is a description of some, some Torah commandments, at the very least, works of the law includes circumcision. I think just about every Bible student would probably have to agree with that position, that works of the law, no matter what it includes, no matter how long the list is, it has to at least include circumcision because of the way Paul describes circumcision in his letters, especially, say, Galatians chapter 5. I, Paul, tell you that if you receive circumcision, Christ is of no effect. How could circumcision uproot the work of Christ? Well, if you're casting your faith on your circumcision, then and instead of casting your, your salvific faith on the, ob the true object of faith, which is Yeshua HaMashiach, then your what we could say is that your faith is mistaken, it's misplaced. You've got the wrong object of faith. It's similar to the way people place their faith in the wrong Messiah today, right? People place their faith in Buddha. People place their faith in Krishna. People place their faith in Joseph Smith. People place their faith in the Pope. People place their faith in Muhammad. And what would Paul say? I, Paul, tell you that if you place your faith in fill in the blank, Christ will be of none effect. That's what Paul's trying to say in Galatians chapter 5. But what does Paul say? He used the phrase circumcision. Why would he, why would he single out circumcision? If it is a work of the law, which I believe it is, why would he single it out? It's because circumcision was being used as a stand-in word for Jewish identity. We're, we're, we're come full circle again, right? So, let's keep reading my commentary. Um... But many may not know that also by Paul's day, the term circumcision had shifted from the simple physical act in Genesis chapter 17 with its corresponding sign of the Abrahamic covenant as recorded 
in Genesis 17, to a more broad sociological and religious term indicating a status of quote-unquote righteous before God based on simply being a Jewish member of the commonwealth of Israel. Works of the law, which obviously included covenantal circumcision, then becomes part of the social-religious fabric of those groups advocating the Jewish-only policies that regulated supposed covenant membership, policies that Paul likely held to prior to his faith in Yeshua. You can read Galatians 5.11 where Paul talks about, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? And um, these uh, policies, he's eventually going to identify as another gospel in Galatians 1, 6-9. Remember, Paul says, I, Paul, teach, tell you that if any man preaches another gospel, let him be, and the Greek says, anathema, let him be accursed. So, why would Paul... Why would Paul um, preach circumcision? What, what, what does it mean to preach circumcision? And that's the point I'm trying to elevate in my commentaries, is that circumcision became the, the, um, the, the boundary marker between those who were righteous, i.e. the Jews, and those who were unrighteous, the sinners, i.e. the Gentiles. Uh, recall Paul's words in Galatians 2.15, we're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, when he starts um, uh, rebuking Peter for taking the stance that he took when, he, when Peter distanced himself from the uh, Gentiles. We're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. We're going to talk about that phrase, Jews by, excuse me, Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. What do you mean Gentile sinners, right? Let's keep reading in my commentary. Um, we're on the uh, top of page 25. Actually, you know what? This is a great place to stop. We're going to stop here at the top of page 25, where we're going to um, talk about uh, works of the law and the social religious function that circumcision played in Paul's day with this lengthy quote from, um, from uh, Dr. Che, uh, who is actually a, a, a professor here in, in Seoul, South Korea. Um, I'll pull a quote from him uh starting, not next week, but starting on the 29th of March when we meet again. But for now, let's turn in, for, for the last, say, the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes, let's turn to Romans chapter 3 and keep working our way down through this exegetically like we've been doing. We started in chapter 2 the last few weeks, and what I'm doing is I'm trying to highlight this concept of circumcision as a uh, as an ethnic boundary. We already know it's a metonym. We don't, we don't have to guess on that part. Um, we already know that circumcision, uh, when Paul uses it in his letters, sometimes he's speaking of the surgical act, you know, the physical circumcision. Sometimes he's speaking of Jewish identity. And and because we know it's already being used that way, I don't have to make that assumption. Uh, you don't have to think that that's a leap in logic on my part as a Bible uh, teacher when I say that the Judaisms of Paul's day were were essentially equating circumcision with Jewish identity. Because Paul shows us that that's part of the way that they were using it. That's how he uses it in some uh, in his letters. Now, whether or not Paul would agree with that identification, we, we haven't come to that decision yet. I think that Paul would disagree with it. But let's read Romans 2 and, and work our way a little bit uh, down. What we're doing is we're working our way towards 320, where Paul uses this phrase, works of the law, in Romans for the very first time. Uh, Keep in mind that Galatians and Romans are about two years apart from one another. Galatians were written by by all um, by most scholarly reckoning uh, around say eighty fifty five, and uh, Romans was written about eighty fifty seven. And um, some important things that 
differentiate these two books is that Galatians was written after Paul visited the community, and therefore you could say Galatians is Paul's damage control. He's writing a letter after the fact, after he found out about the influencers, uh, aka the Judaizers or the agitators, who had um, basically snuck in unawares, as Paul describes it, into the Galatian community and were preaching this other gospel, this pseudo-gospel, or false gospel is what Paul describes it. And what would that gospel be? The good news that if you become a Jew, you can be counted as a genuine covenant member in God's community. That was the false gospel. And uh, Jewish identity hinges on the proselyte conversion ceremony that we read about in the Talmud passage a few weeks back. Um, so this would be the position in Galatians, is that Paul wrote Galatians after he had visited the community. But with Romans... Um, Paul had not visited the Romans yet. He had not gone to Rome at the time that he wrote Romans, and therefore he's writing before the fact. And what's really nice is, is that by, by my reckoning, which is, which is by uh, most scholarly reckoning, uh, what happened between Galatians and Romans is the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. And the reason that's very important for our study of both the books of Galatians as well as Romans is that in Acts 15, essentially church policy was written concerning the position, the um, social standing of Gentiles within the Messianic communities. And what was that decision? These Gentiles turning to God do not need to become Jews before they can be counted as righteous, viz, before they can be saved, before they can be counted as genuine covenant members in the communities. And the uh, four stipulations that were handed out in, in Acts 15 plays a big part uh, in um, determining the, uh, the, uh, the church policies, if we want to describe them, the halacha. Uh, so that's the point I'm trying to make, is as we're reading through the book of Romans, keep in mind that Galatians is under Paul's belt, and it's more than likely that uh, 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 the uh, Jerusalem Council has already taken place. And now Paul starts to pen uh, the words that we read in Romans. So let's pick up the reading in Romans 3, and we'll just work away a, a, a few verses at a time. I'm not going to be able to finish Romans 3 tonight. We'll pick it up again when we meet in two weeks. Starting in verse 1, what, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Notice the close relation right away in verse 1 of Jew and circumcision, right? It's because, in the, in the, again, in Paul's worldview, the Jew and circumcision and the Torah were all coterminous. They were, they were concepts that were all rolled in together. The Jew is a person who was circumcised, who, who also keeps Torah, which, which circumcision is a part of. Um, I suppose that the, the, the big difference is the Jew who was born a Jew was passively circumcised. So therefore, you could say he didn't really get credit for keeping circumcision because it was something that his parents did for him on his behalf. But once he became an adult in the community, then it was incumbent upon him to take on what the rabbis of today call the yoke of Torah, right? The yoke of the commandments, the yoke of the Torah, by pledging allegiance to uh uh, Torah obedience, to become Shomer Mitzvot, as we would say in Jewish Orthodox circles. Shomer Mitzvot, or he was Dati, he was Frum, we would say. that He, he became a, a Torah-observant person. It became his responsibility as, a, as an adult male in the Jewish community after Bar Mitzvah age to, um, to begin to walk into the commandments, not passively uh, as, his, as, his, as his parents made him do it as a child, but now to actively pursue his place as a viable, good-standing uh, uh, um, covenant member. So let's keep reading. 
Verse 2, much in every way, speaking of, of being a Jew and the value of circumcision, Paul says, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse 4, by no means, meganoito. Let God be true, even though everyone were a liar, as it is written, gegraptai uh, in the Greek, kakatuv uh, in Hebrew, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? This is ESV, by the way, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? On us, I speak in a human way. Verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I'm reading somewhat quickly down through this because Paul's introducing this concept of righteousness. And I suppose at this point, <clears throat> I'm going to have to give a little teaser for section four in my commentary where I talk about righteousness in Paul. Essentially, um, from the Christian perspective, there are basically two types of righteousness that are described in the pages of the Bible. There's basically what we call forensic righteousness, which is salvation justification. And then there's behavioral righteousness or sanctification, uh, right living. So basically in, in, in traditional Christian, um, uh, what we say systematic theology, it's, it's no secret that uh, forensic righteousness is, is the um, monergistic work that God bestows upon our half when we place our faith in Yeshua. We could describe it as kind of a static one-time event where uh, uh, the courtroom uh, language is in view when God says dikaiosune uh, uh, or the dikaio word group in the Greek is this righteousness or justified. God the judge, the righteous judge, brings the gavel down and he acquits the sinner in his courtroom because the sinner has placed his faith is on the object of faith known as Yeshua. And therefore God can credit such an individual with righteousness, with forensic righteousness, this monergistic work. In other words, God saves this individual based on that person's uh, genuine faith in Yeshua, the Messiah. But at that point in time, um, something else happens. The Spirit comes into the person and begins to um, uh, lead that person toward down the path of sanctification, which is not a static one-time event. Rather, it is, by comparison, an ongoing event where we begin the walk of sanctification, the walk of uh, how Paul describes in Romans chapter 12, the um, um, re uh, renewing of our mind, the transforming of our mind and our old thought processes. We could say the old man dies, the new man is born. And from that point in time, we begin walking as a child of God, but with the help of the Spirit. And rather than being a monergistic work where God does all the work, uh, where God does all gets all the credit, um, Sanctification, by comparison, is a synergistic work. It's two people working together, which is what the word synergistic or synergistic means. It's, it's, it's this harmony of the work of the Spirit and me. It's not that the Spirit's going to do it all for me, and it's not that I have to think that I have to do it all for myself. It's neither one of those. It is both working together. It's me availing myself of the power of the Spirit. And as I walk by the Spirit, then the water of the washing, the, the washing of the water of the Word will cleanse me from sin and I'll be able to put on the behavioral righteousness 
uh, I'll be able to do good works. And in, in that sense, works are something that are um, prescribed for us. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine? For by faith are you saved through. For by grace are you saved through faith. I'm quoting from KJV. Uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, not what, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the next verse says, "For uh, uh, he is our workman." Uh, uh, oh gosh, I'm butchering it. I thought I had it memorized when I was a, raised as a Baptist. Um, basically, Paul says is that good works were established for us to do. If I could just paraphrase what I was trying to, to quote. So um, the point I'm trying to make is that good works are not a bad thing. So when Paul talks about works later on in his in his writings, it's not necessary that works must imply Torah obedience. However, let's talk about motive for a second. If you are a genuine child of God and you are doing the commandments out of a genuine love for God, and those those um, commandments are in fact described as works, wouldn't that be a good thing? Yeah, it would be. Okay, because obedience is always good. God blesses obedience. Let's keep reading. Um, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Why is Paul even bringing up Jews and Greeks? Because there was this common worldview, kind of a, a, of a uh, what we call a dualistic worldview in Paul's day, that the entire world was broken down into two groups of people, the Jews and the non-Jews. And that's why Paul kind of uses them as this, as these two social groups, the Jews and the Greeks. And then he's going to make this lengthy quote from the, uh, the Tanakh. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good? Good in what way? No one has good works? Well, wait a minute. If you're keeping Torah, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, aren't those works good? Uh-huh. We'll talk about that. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. End quote. What Paul is describing for us is that um, according to God's standard of righteousness, let me kind of make my screen a little bigger here, According to God's standard of righteousness, um, the whole world is guilty before God. And Paul's going to use the, the, the proof from the Tanakh that the whole world is guilty when it comes to forensically being counted as righteous before God. So it is in this worldview of seeking to be counted as a genuine righteous covenant member, i.e. the kind that was described by the um, Abrahamic covenant, it is within that framework that Paul's going to turn his sights on this notion of works of the law and under the law and the, and the relationship of the law to the covenant member in Israel. And so I think what I'll do is I'll stop um, there in Romans 3, verse 18, and we'll pick up the reading again two weeks from now. In verse 19, we'll start out with, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So we have to start working with this phrase under the law before we get to verse 20, where it says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. <clears throat> so um, let me go ahead and close in prayer, and then I'll keep the chat room open for the students who have joined. We've got about 15, 20 minutes left in the chat room, and we can just dialogue about what we've um, learned tonight.
uh, let me close in prayer, and uh, I bless you uh, as you go. Uh, meet with us again in two weeks on uh, March 29th, where we're going to study Exegete and Galatians again, okay? Let's pray. Abba, we bless your name, and we thank you for the opportunity to sit and to study and to learn of you. And Father, we seek to study so that we can learn about the Messiah, Yeshua, so that we can, like Ezra did, study in order to do, in order to teach. Father, we, uh, we say this over and over again. We seek to be pleasing to you. And we know that in Messiah, there's nothing we can do to add to that which has already been done by his work. Lord, we know that his work is a finished work. It is a perfect work. And so for that reason, we simply fall on our knees and thank you that you have uh, sent your son into our hearts and that you have caused us uh, to um, confess your name and that you are bringing us into a continued right relationship with you via your spirit. For that reason, Father, we confess that we are inadequate and we ask that you will continue to raise us up as students, as teachers, as uh, people who uh, seek to to um, bear your name and to to give the good news to those around us. Uh, give us the opportunity, open doors, so that we can be a light uh, to our friends, to our family members, to our co-workers, to our spouses. Father, we want to be witnesses. We want to be ambassadors for your kingdom. And so for that reason, Father, we, we seek to uh, study the words so that we can know what it means to be a genuine and um, lasting child of God. Uh, be with each and every student that has attended tonight. I pray that you will bless them where they're at. Um, forgive them, heal them, Lord, and raise them up. Strengthen them uh, to be strong, uh, viable lights in this Torah community. Uh, bring us, uh, Take us into the break and give us a rest that we so much need and bring us back together two weeks from now. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the preeminence in all things. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 